Blog Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 
You know, so yeah, Ig- Iggy, but that album, yeah, you could definitely say that was the first punk album. You, you'd have some argument there, but I yeah, mean, that's certainly one of them. And also in 1969, you had guys like uh, Crumb, Spain, say, say, screw this above ground artist comic movement. And they started their stuff, right, Carl? Mm-hmm. Yep. And thanks to hippies that smoke weed, they had stores to sell their stuff in. They were called head shops. Thank God for them. Seriously. And not just for the weed stuff. No, no. Because the head shops would, you would go in there and there'd be kitchen sink comics. There would be Robert Crumb. There would be Spain. And a lot of them had records, too. You know, yeah. that's how I got started. Uh, I, I got to say this. There, there there was a head shop when we moved to Bradford, uh, in the middle of Bradford, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and uh, Jerry O'Wallaby ran it. And Jerry was the guy that introduced me to Zappa, to the Kinks. Jerry was very important to me. And also, I had my first joint with him. So there you go. Yeah. Yay, Jerry, wherever you are. But, yeah, head shops. They stocked in the stuff that the weed heads wanted. What did they want? They wanted alternative comics that showed their lifestyle to weed while stoned. And they wanted alternative music to what they could easily get in the record stores. Yeah. Or they liked, or as you said, they liked the guy in charge of the head shop. So they'd go in, he'd be playing music, and he'd be like, that good. What is that? Oh, it's this dude's first album. Ooh, you got it? Yeah, I've got it over here. Boom. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, even I did that when I had the music store in the 80s. You know, I'd have my, my boom yeah. box with, with the CDs in it, and, and the kids would come in and always ask me, what's playing, what's playing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I thought that, well... There's a couple of films on here that we're going to talk about that I had to go to Carl, and this is how stupid I sounded. Hey, Carl, you mean this movie ain't 1970s? No, it's 69. No, it has to be 70s. They couldn't put this out in 69. They did. They did. Absolutely. And the first one I got is one of the ones that Carl picked. But this one was barely released, and I don't—I never even really heard about it until its DVD release about three or four years ago. And that would be The Cremator. Yeah, The, the Cremator is a real interesting Yugoslavian film. And the the Eastern Bloc, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll ha- we have a couple of Russian films we'll talk about, and so on and so forth. We're very experimental, and the Cremator, I can't even explain what it's about. It's basically about this guy who uh, is a Cremator and kills people. Well, actually, doesn't kill people, but, but basically burns them and burns garbage and things like that. And he goes sort of nuts and into a whole fantasy world. And it's, I guess you could call it horror, but it's, it's odder than that. 
very it's strange about little denial. film. Yeah, that too. Because no, he based it on these guys that he's seen interviews in Nuremberg mm-hmm. that were that when they killed the Jews in the camps and things like that, they their excuse was, "I was just doing my job. I was doing a benefit to society." I thought. Yeah. And over Vietnam, yes, that was our excuse for being over there. We're just oh, doing absolutely. our job in America. Yeah, I can't. I I can't say enough about this film. Um, it's a Czech film, and it's just really. Uh, it's based on a, a novel by Ladislav Fuchs, and. Um, just it's basically 30s Prague where the cremator lives and works and he's often and he's often recognized as a follower of uh, German expressionistic film and uh, it's just he gets involved in all this shit and it's really something. Um, he's he's obsessed with his duties and he's not just cremating the dead but liberating the souls of the departed and uh, Nazi forces are gathering at the Czech border and. It gets crazy. <laughs> Let's just say that. And if you're looking for something different and you don't know about this one, get it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one that's posted over at ISF all the time in incredibly strange films. And trust yeah. me, uh, uh, well worth having posted there. No question. And we talk about how the rules is broke. Well, the fourth one I want to mention just barely is... Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, because for the first two-thirds of that movie, it's your typical, well, all I got to do is uh, sing the song for it that was nominated for best song. Raindrops keep falling on my on. head. Yeah. It's such a jovial, friendly, buddy, Western comedy for the first two-thirds of the movie. And then it pulls the rug out from under you with a very dark, dark, dark Yes, finale. and they want to go to Bolivia, and they kind of don't make it there. <laughs> yeah. The only difference is, is unlike Bonnie and Clyde, this film's predecessor, this one doesn't show them die. No. Roy Hill said that was a deliberate choice on his part. Oh, absolutely. To end it with them going out for their last bang. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it, it's really a really good movie. To me, it's yeah. a little too mainstream for my taste. But nonetheless, it still has that dark ending. Oh, and I'm not talking about these mainstream. Yeah, so was uh, Bonnie and Clyde. It was, uh, hey, look, we're the cool Even the trailers sold it. As hey, look, we're the cool kids. They from a fashion was influenced by that movie, and then people who didn't read the reviews but only seen the trailers and stuff <coughs> went to see it. And the last five minutes, basically, damn. Yeah. No shit. No shit. It wasn't that we got to see the bad guys get shot. We got to see the bad guys get shot the fuck up. 
<laughs> like 30, 40 fucking rounds each. Yeah. yeah. And another one to talk about quickly is The Italian Job. This film was so beloved in the U.K., that until last year when someone actually pulled it off, they had a contest. The BBC did every year. Did they make it through the ending? And if they did, how could they have done it? Mm-hmm. Wonderful little film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, just a really nice, light caper film. And it's really fun. And Michael Caine's so good. And he's just and so good. who else did it introduce us to in the U.S. to? Well, that's that's a good question. Uh, do you mean uh, Noel Coward? No, or Benny, Benny Hill. Hill. You're talking Benny Hill. Yeah. All right, Benny Don't Hill. Don't forget, in the dawn of the 70s, between 70 and about 82, 83, the Benny Hill show in syndication was kicking Saturday Night Live's ass. Oh, yeah. Yep. And another one and then, that... Okay, go ahead. Yeah. This one, people were complaining that should have won... What the heck? What? Oh, never mind. I got it. I got it taken care of. Okay. But, yeah, they complained that this, this was the thing. There was the film that won, which was the liberal movie. And then there was a film that didn't win, which was the conservatives pick for best movie of that year. And that would be True Grit. Well, you know, it did win the Oscar for, for John Wayne. Yeah, he deserved it. He was good in that movie. But do you see what I mean by that was the one that the conservatives thought was the best picture and the liberals oh, thought the one that won. We're going to talk about it, but we're saving it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, True Grit is a, uh, is a wonderful film. Uh, I prefer the remake, to be honest, because it's closer to the uh, uh, source material. However, you know, John Wayne, who who I grew up disliking intensely, uh, and I've told that story many times. My dad just loved him. But but that film, even I liked him in. And when I liked him in it, that was saying something when I was 11 years old. And it was the first really big role of Robert Duvall. Yes, it was. And let's not forget Kim Darby. She did a really yeah. good job in that. That's, that's why this year, you, whenever we did an Oscar show, I'm glad we never had to deal with 69 because that would be a brutal year to pick. <laughs> oh, oh, bad. And there were so many films that weren't even up for Oscars. And we'll get into that. Yeah. My favorite film of the year wasn't up for an Oscar. I can guarantee you that. Not even for fucking cinematography? No, no. Wasn't oh, wasn't nominated damn. for one goddamn thing. God damn, that's fucked up. 
but <laughs> here we go. And next one is me and Carl argue about this. I call it an almost movie. I don't like the fact that they pussied out on the original ending, and that is Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. But it's still more pertinent than films like uh, the, uh, I Love You, Alice, Be Talkless, uh, The Impossible Years. <laughs> and yes, it's age better than most people would have thought it would, so it don't count. Well, I I like the film. Okay, I don't think it's Mussorgsky's best film, but it was a game changer. You know, it, it certainly, you know, didn't go all the way with its premise. But, you know, this was a film that really introduced L.A. Gould to people before MASH. Uh, Robert Culp gets one of his few lead roles in film, and he does a really good job. Diane Cannon. Uh, Natalie Wood, uh, Natalie Wood is what I consider her sexiest by far, um, and and it's a fun movie. But you're right, it does pussy out at the end. And yes, I did say pussy, and yes, it, that's sort of what it's about. Kids. I did too. Uh, the original you know. ending was is that they have sex, and Elliot Gould and Diane and. Uh, who was his wife, Diane Cannon? Or the Diane, Diane Cannon was his wife, and yeah. Natalie Wood was with Robert Culp. The real ending, the original ending was they was going to walk out of the house, and Gould looks at her and goes, what do you think? And she went, eh, what do you think? Eh. <laughs> yeah. It's all about wife swapping and, 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 and free love and all that sort of thing. And don't so, forget the... So, uh, the exploitation guys are probably doing it sooner and better than they were. Uh, oh, hell yeah. H.G. Lewis's Suburban Roulette. Mm-hmm. Friedman. Uh, yeah. Score, even. You know, Metzger. Yeah. And for our first big movie of tonight, this is a movie, when it came out, all people were saying... Is the same thing they say about reboots nowadays. Well, it's not my blah, blah, blah. I want my blah, blah, blah. I don't want to see any changes, blah, blah, blah. The more things change, the more they stupidly stay the same. Oh, absolutely. And this film was truly hated when it first came out. And it's one of Carl's favorites, and I love the longer cuts of this rather than the shorter ones. And what film would I be talking about, Carl? Tag you in. You know what? I have no freaking clue. <laughs> Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Okay. Okay. To me, this is my favorite all-time Bond film. It just is. There's a couple reasons. One, it's got the best Bond woman ever, and that would be Diana Rigg, who I was already in love with because of the Avengers. Okay. Best Blowfield ever. You know, and and and, and Lazenby is really good in this. You know, a lot of people, you know, he 
he screwed himself, number one. Uh, but yeah. number two is, you know, he's fallen Sean Connery, and that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and thirdly, damn it, the best blow field ever. Telly Savalas is just awesome. And those women up at the the, the, the Swiss uh, um, uh, uh, chalet are just, wow. Yeah. Um, just, I And then the skiing thing at the beginning, this – it's perfect. To me, this is a perfect Bond film. But not because of the editors. When the theatrical cut came out, they totally fucked up the editing. They had James Bond in a fight scene with Blofeld before they even met. Yeah. So you're sitting there about 20 minutes in after that big fight scene wondering... How the fuck are they not knowing each other? We just see yep. them shoot at each other. And why the fuck is Bond in love with her? And then now he's just met her. Yep. <laughs> but it wasn't until it was shown on TV, what, the ABC cut, right? Yeah. Where they got the ABC it right. cut was when they first re-edited it. Mm-hmm. And I, they still haven't done a proper Blu-ray, Blu-ray of it with all of the various cuts. Of it. And they better do something before Lazenby kicks the bucket, okay? As far as I'm concerned. Um, I, I, you know, I when when I first saw that, and I saw that on on TV, um, you know, like seventy-one or seventy-two, and that's the theatrical cut. From there on in, I, I I championed that film. I kept telling people, it's not as bad as you think. In fact, it's goddamn good. And nobody believed me for years. For years. Well, look at the, the song, Tracy's song, Only a Moment. In a theatrical cut, the first time it's played, it's confusing. Because mm-hmm. it's supposed to be played at two important parts. One when they first meet, and two, at the very, very end. Right. We're not giving away the ending. Because you're supposed to really listen to the lyrics a second time to realize how heartbreaking that is. And Lazenly and crew weren't helped out that the fact that they were like, oh, my God, we're losing... uh, uh, Sean Connery, let's make a Blowfield film. But the next film won't make any sense. We want to do it with Connery, but it won't make any fucking sense. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really. They should have not included Blowfield. Well, I, t- I, I tell you what, though. God damn it. I don't care because Telly Savalas is perfect. Oh, he's, he's the perfect. best low fell I mean. ever. He just is. Amen. And it's one you should try to see if it's a long or longer cut. Mm-hmm. And of course, we want to get to the first uh, of the mini. 
gay films on our on the list we're going to talk about. And I'm going by this, and it's Fellini Satyricon. 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 But I like it, but it's too Fellini for my <laughs> taste. I'm not a great Fellini fan. However, I think everyone should pick one of those Fellini movies that are just mind fucks. And I can't think of a better one than this one. La Strada. La Strada is his best. No, La Strada isn't Fellini. La Strada is not Fellini. The one with Anthony Quinn is a giant who falls in love with the clown? Yeah. No, that is not Fellini. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a, I, that's Rosalini, I think. Hold on. I could be wrong. I'm checking that now. Give me a moment. We both could be wrong. That's why we're true experts. Because we admit yeah, exactly. we can fuck up. La Strada. Okay, there he is with Julieta. Okay, hold on. You know, that's Fellini. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm terribly wrong. But, yeah, when Satyricon came out, it played great for gay audiences on the gay midnight circuit. Well, that's because it's the whole movie is, is like, you know, don't care who you're paired for. You, you're going to have sex with them. And, and, you know, there are naked men, naked women, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, multi-orgies going on. How can you not like it if you're gay? Seriously. Yeah. Or or straight. Doesn't really friggin' matter. <laughs> and I think Oh there's one other thing I have to say about Satyricon. Do not yeah, watch it if good. you're a I liked it, but it's still too flighty for my own good. Well, I agree. But good. don't watch it if you're calorophobic. If you're afraid of clowns, don't fucking watch this movie. Yeah. Everybody's in white here. Yeah, and here comes my pick for the what the fuck title of the '60s. I just okay. look at it and I just go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> Carl, in your most stone moments, would you have taken a joint and gone, "Yeah, let's put Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood in a fucking musical"? <laughs> no, <laughs> I would have not done that. <laughs> the only good thing to come out of that is that Simpsons joke where they watch, where Homer's like, I rented a manly movie. It's got Lee Marvin and Clint Eastwood. Yeah. What's it called? Paint Your Wagon. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's bad, but it's so, in the year, in the decade where you have Skidoo in it, that paint your wagon I'll is take the most any time over, 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 uh, Oh, I'm, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that, that it's the most batshit crazy of all the films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is let's not forget Gene Seberg can't freaking sing either. And this film is the film. One, this is the biggest film. I went to Carl and I said, "You mean this is from the '70s? You got to be kidding me!" 
And I kept saying, no, it's not the 69. Then I looked it up. All I got to say now is, Carl, if you want it, here it is. Come and get it. (laughs) Yep. Okay. I love this movie. We're talking about a film called The Magic Christmas. And it is one of my all-time favorite satirical comedies. And basically, you've got uh, Peter Sellers, who adopts Ringo Starr. Uh, Peter Sellers is Sir Guy Grand, and he basically teaches uh, uh, Ringo that everyone has a price. And it is one of the most batshit films you've ever seen. You've got uh, uh, Yul Brenner and Drag uh, singing uh, to... Uh, uh, What's his name? Uh, come on, 1969. Um, Polanski. Yeah. Roman Polanski in drag. Uh, you have uh, members of the uh, uh, of uh, what was going to be a Monty Python, and they also helped co-wrote the script with Terry Southern, who Terry Southern gave us uh, the script for Doctor Strangelove. And this thing is brutal. It is just. Oh, my God. Then it gets incredibly crazy. And let me tell you something. You have to see it just for Raquel Welch in a leather teddy with a whip. Okay? And that's all I'll say. Uh, and, and Christopher Lee is Dracula. And uh, basically all shitload craziness goes on in a ship called the Magic Christian. It's wonderful. I love this movie. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. And I, I've gone on yeah. enough. This is such a mean movie, and I'm saying that in a good way. That's why I was shocked it wasn't the 70s. I was like, this is basically the movie that inspired me to do this show. Because I was like, you mean people were that pissed off already? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I will tell you the ending of this film, just to tell you how nasty it is. So basically the whole thing is that... Peter Sellers is saying everyone has their price. So Ringo, at the end of this, uh, it's his turn to really do something. So he gets a big outdoor pool, fills it with feces, with shit, with sewer, with everything. And and, and uh, it's so bad, you have to wear a gas mask. And they drop money into it and you see these people start waiting and picking up the money brutal fucking brutal yeah. Terry Southern, talk about ahead of its time oh yeah well Terry Southern was ahead of his time you know sometimes they got it right sometimes they got it wrong I mean if you want to see a Terry Southern movie that went wrong watch Candy but this one they got yeah. right that's really the bar the bar good side is a tie between the Magic Christian and Dr. Strangelove. The bar for bad, the complete opposite end, is candy. <laughs> yes. That, 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 that is true. One just stunk us. Mm-hmm. And of course, we got Cass here, which is more important for who directed it than really the movie itself. Well, it was Ken Loach's first film. 
Yeah, yeah. it's Ken Loach's first film. Ken is one of the, the gritty, realist uh, uh, directors of Britain. And it's it's basically about his boy and his kestrel, his 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 bird, his his falcon, and it is heartbreaking. It's wonderful. It's really hard to follow because of the really thick accents, but nonetheless, it's really really good. And and I've always enjoyed the film. And it's one of those smaller films, and you'll see that there are a lot of smaller films in '69. And that's one of them. Yeah, in, yeah. Let's see. And next is a title where if you just look at the poster and you just see the title, you're like, oh, what's this movie? Anything about and then you come out, and then the title jumps off the poster and punches you in the face. Mm-hmm. And that would be Sidney Pollock's very, 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 very brutal with one of Gig Young's best fucking roles. It was his best they role, period. They shoot horses, don't they? Oh, Jesus God. This one, I saw this when I was probably... 12 or 13 on TV and and they didn't cut it really and oh, man it fucking destroyed me basically it's set during the depression uh, Michael Saracen uh, and Jane Fonda are this couple that hook up and they have these dance marathons that if you survive till the end you get you you get I think at that point it was a thousand dollars, which of course is a lot of money back in the depression. And you see these people just destroy themselves to do this. And Gig Young is the oily uh, uh, um, master of ceremonies, and he's just awful. And I mean they they have these sections where you have to. Uh, go around the room as fast as you can and, and keep a hold of each other while, while they're, you know, people are trying to knock you apart and shit like that. It's yeah. it's brutal. It's just nasty. And the, the end of it is The real dance contest like that back in the Depression era, which they changed mm-hmm. because people probably wouldn't have understood or got it, was right. they would fight for fucking groceries. Literally. Oh, yeah. If you win this dance contest, we give you $25 worth of free groceries at the store. So there are people who would kill to win those, and the movie does talk about that. Oh, yeah. Look at it. Yeah. Oh, and man. The it, fucking it, title. God oh. damn. And, and, and Sidney Pollack, you know, there's a guy that we don't talk about enough as far as his run in the 60s and 70s. Uh, uh, he came up with some really fine, fine directorial efforts. Uh, I love Jeremiah Johnson. There's so many films that he did. But he also was an actor first, and then at the end of his career, he went back to acting, and he was freaking fantastic. Yeah, Sidney Pollack is probably the only good thing I think me and Carl have said about Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, yeah. 
without a doubt. It doesn't I wanted to see the movie either. that Sidney Pollack was in, damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you want to fuck with these people? Do you know who they are? <laughs> yeah. And even at home, I was like, shit, I don't talk to VCR. Shit, I might get out of this. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's another one that started uh, in 69 was uh, Pollock's uh, run. Well, well, okay, we're they do shoot two foreign films now, and I'm passing them over to Carl. And one would be 1969's Army of Shadows, and another political movie that came out called Z. Okay, well, let's start with Army of Shadows. Army of Shadows is a wonderful uh, World War II film. Uh, it's written and directed by by Jean Pierre Melville. It's an adaptation of, uh, uh, of Joseph Kessel's book of the same thing, and it's talk about the French Resistance. Um, and the one thing about Army Shadows that I have to say is that it introduced me to this actor. Now, you may not know the actor's name, but let me tell you something. You've seen him. And uh, to me, he is the illegitimate father of Jean Renault, and that would be Lino Ventura. And this is just, he's just incredible in this film. It's just incredible. And uh, Alain and, Delon. Uh, and Alain Delon. Uh, he has actually a smaller part in this. He doesn't have a large part in this. Yeah. But basically, it's about the French resistance. And and uh, uh, what they have to do in a special, he's got three men that he works with, and, and they're going to... Uh, um, sabotage this bridge and it's not really about the action it's about how the war and how all this weighs on them and and, and, and the, the existential dread and that so it's very European as opposed to something like uh, 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 the bridge on the river Kwai you know hey! this, this is, but it's a wonderful film and and uh, just check out Lino Ventura. Seriously. And if you like that uh, movie, I saw this. Another well, let me finish. I saw this on HBO is, in the 70s. I didn't see it until years later, and it just floored me. It's a great film. And sorry, Carl. The two that I would put with it as ones you need to watch also are Ashes and Diamonds and Canal, spelled with a K. Yeah, those and both of those are, are Andre Wojcicki. Uh, yeah, and those three and he's films a Polish are director, and it's about the Polish resistance. Yes, yeah. I would agree with that. Absolutely. And, and Z. we'll get back to Carl. Z is one of the political films. Oh, Z is magnificent. Z is just magnificent. Uh, it's a French thriller directed by Costa Gravas, uh, and it's based on a novel by Basilis Basicos, Greek uh, writer, and it's basically about the assassination of Democratic Greek politician Grigory Lambakis in 1963. And it really, really a, uh, a very satirical and nasty uh, view of uh, the political situation in Greek politics. Uh, it was uh, Costa Gravis is a Greek filmmaker, but the Greeks wouldn't touch this movie. In fact, it was 
uh, banned in Greece for a number of years. Uh, but it was uh, uh, financed by French and Algerian people. Stars Jean-Louis Trignon, uh and uh, Yves Montand, an Iron Pappas. And it's just a fabulous film. And it is action-packed. It's so the tension is, is palpable. It, it's just incredible. And plus, it's dangerous in a way that film needs to be dangerous. Yes. Well, when a film is uh, basically uh, 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 banned in, in the country where it's set uh, and where the filmmaker is from, there's usually reasons. And next, uh, did you ever know that there was a musical based on the umbrellas of Schoenberg? Schoenberg. Absolutely. Schoenberg, I mean, yeah. I love that film. What kind of cynical lo- bastard would make a movie about that? Uh, well, well, one of my favorite film directors, French film director by the name of Jacques Demi. I'm talking about the American version of it, the musical Sweet Charity. Well, actually, Sweet Charity is not based on the Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Oh, what's it based on? It's it's based it's it's based on a Fellini film. Oh. Well, still, it I'd gave us check- one of it gave us my favorite cynical bastard director of all time. <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. And this is not his best musical either, but but nothing can, can beat uh, all that jazz. Yeah. Sorry. Bob but but we're talking about Bob Fosse. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it was his featured yeah. directorial review. And uh, I'm trying to... Based on the stage musical, the same name, which in turn is based on Fellini screenplay for Knights of Cabrilla. That's it. It's based on Knights of Cabrilla. Oh, I, I skipped the film. Knights of Cabrilla was done into the umbrella of Schoenberg as a musical. No, it was, and it's a completely different thing. Umbrella of Schoenberg is completely different. Completely different. Trust me on that. I love okay. the umbrellas of Cherbourg. And next, well, there's a guy, we've talked about him on the show before, and that he's considered one of the great mad bastards of British filmmaking. But he loved his art. He was the first one to take D.H. Lawrence with this film and do it with the proper respect it has. But he was also one to take, perverse enough, to take a title called Women in Love and make the main focus of it the relationship between the two men that the women are married to. Yep. And this would be... Ken Russell's biggest mainstream hit, and Paul, I think the only one he got nominated for Oscars for. And that wrestling scene, damn. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when you have Alan Bates and Oliver Reed 
going at each other, both acting-wise and, and and in the nude, uh, they're not gonna they're 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 not worried about it. They're gonna go for it, and they do. And let's not forget the women. Glenda Jackson is just magnificent in that film. Seriously. And that and that little scene at the end of it when they're just supposed to be laying together and Oliver Reed strokes his chest. Yep. That was improvisation on Oliver Reed's part. Oh yeah. Yeah, and the funny thing is, you know, we were talking about gay films of, of, of the year. This definitely uh no question oh, was God, LGBTQ. Yeah. Without a doubt. It's on Criterion. You must see it. Here we are. And now we're getting to a movie that I liked, but Carl fucking hates. And that is The Brutal Ugly, still not available, uncut, last summer. I won't say I hate it, but I don't like it. I think it's It's, ugly. I think it's an ugly, ugly film. Yeah. It was written by Richard Stark, who was a big film noir writer. And I love it because it's an ugly, nasty ward of a film. Yeah, but but to me, there's nobody there, including Catherine Burns, who you can even like. There's nobody there. And how can they, you watch a movie a where everyone it, a, is a stupid yeah. asshole? Yeah. That's my problem with it. No, your problem is that you got the right reaction. Yeah, but why make it like that? Seriously. I mean, I mean, there are – look, Heathers, for example. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know – People are ugly in that film, but but at least you get an idea of why and you, you, you understand it a little bit. To me, these these kids are just stuck up, you know, rich kids who don't, you know, you know, bully everyone and bully Catherine Burns into doing what she ah. does. And, and uh, oh, God, I hate, uh, yeah, this is just an ugly fucking film. If you read the novel, the protagonists are even fucking worse. They blame the people they do the nasty shit to for no. them oh, doing Oh, yeah. It. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. They're three psychopaths. <laughs> There's just no way no. about it. <laughs> And the worst part, if they would, and they cut the full ending, which would have been the worst part. Okay. Which is they just got away with it, and they didn't see her for the rest of the summer. And right before the second book is about how two years later they found out that she committed suicide, and they don't care. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot one. Uh, a hundred rifles. I'll bring this up in closing because this was the first film in America to have a black man and a white woman in a sex scene. 
And you know what? Okay, you go on with that because I found something which I'm going to talk about after you go, okay? okay. I checked into this. I mean, it's like, hey, she's screwing someone that looks like uh, Fred Williams. No, it wasn't Fred Williams. Yeah, Fred Williamson. Yeah, look at his muscles. Damn, I do that. Other side, he's screwing Raquel Welch. Yeah, I ain't got no damn problem with that. And thus the races were unified. <laughs> yeah. But, but, okay. uh, but hold, hold on just a second. So I thought it was Jim Brown. Uh, hold on. Yeah, yeah it is I Jim Brown. It, it, is Jim not, Brown. Not, it is not Hammer. It's Jim Brown. It's Jim Brown. But still. Okay, but, 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 released in the same month. There's another movie. I don't know which one is first. But there's a movie called The Grasshopper, which is 1969, directed by Jerry Paris, who's better known as a TV director. Yeah. With Jim Brown and um, and what's her name? Uh, uh, hold on. I'll give you this in a second. Uh, and Jacqueline Bissett in Vegas. And they also have sex. I'm being technical. You're probably right with the grasshopper. But if I want to be really technical, I would put it with 19, since it's a French film, I don't think it counts, which is uh, 1968's uh, Story of a Three-Day Pass by Melvin Van Peebles. Actually, that goes back to 66, I think, actually. But, yeah. Yeah. That would be the first. I was just underlining the word American, the same people who wouldn't let David Carradine kiss an Asian woman when he's playing an Asian man. I know, I know. Tell me about it. But yeah, The Grasshopper is one, too. Yeah. And the same year that Gene Roddenberry did his fuck you to the executives. Yeah, that's 1966. Yeah. We got that too. Mhm. Oh yeah. All right, where are we going next, dear leader? What do you think of this one? I consider it the worst film that Hitchcock ever freaking made, and that's Topaz. It's not good. Yeah. It's not and good. I was thinking about them. These were the films that made James Garner into a semi-movie star, and that would be the duo of support your local sheriff and support your local gunfighter. gunfighter. Yeah, gunfighter came out in 70. Uh, But, uh, yeah, your sheriff is 1969, and I love that. I love that, those films. And you know what? i got to give it credit to. James Garner is wonderful. But do you know who steals that movie? Who? Walter fucking Brennan. Oh, of course. Okay, and, and of course, Bruce Stern. Bruce Stern's in that, too. Oh, nice. But you remember, people have fought throughout the years that who was the better Judge Roy Bean, uh, Walter Brennan or... Uh, Paul Newman. 
I have to go with Newman. Yeah. Just because I love that movie. That's why. And next we have one of the first science faction films. What I mean is they were going for more like Asimov and the stuff that Carl and him were reading in the late 60s, where they was adding more realism and taking out more of the fantasy elements. Yeah, and that would are, be Maroon. Well, you know, okay, so keep in mind, too, this is 1969. Uh, today is the 50th anniversary of, of the takeoff to the moon. Okay, so all this was building up, and so from like 67 to about 70, it all became pretty realistic. Um, the first one would be Countdown, which is an Altman film, which they just ran on Tuesday on uh, TCM. Maroon is a good, solid little film. I think it's a little boring, actually. I think they could have cut it a bit. runs over two hours. Yeah. Uh, Gregory Peck is very good, but it did win for best special effects, visual effects, and it's very well, good. Well, I hate that movie Gravity, the one with Sandra Bullock oh, is basically marooned. Yep. But at least that movie was tighter than a drum at out eighty minutes. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, yeah. This one is a bit over long. Oh, it's a decent film. And we got also the prime of Miss Jean Brody, which I watch it. It's like a dark version of The Sir With Love and all those movies where the teacher ended up screwing up her students more than helping them. It's the reverse well, of the let, magic teacher trope. Well, let me tell you something. Maggie Smith, who won the Academy Award that year for this, uh, is absolutely brilliant. And that's the reason you watch this, is for Maggie. Seriously. <clears throat> She's so good. And here's one of Carl's picks he'll have to talk about, and that's the color of pomegranates. Well, well okay, as we said with the cremator, you know, there, there's a bunch of Eastern European films. And this one is uh, USSR. Uh, it's it's a, basically, it's about the 18th century Armenian poet and troubadour Syed Nova. And it's just odd. <laughs> you know, it's just basically odd. Uh, and, and it's this biography, and the film is presented with little dialogue, using basically active tableau, which depicts the poet's life in chapters. Childhood, youth, prince's court, monastery, dream, old age, and the angel of death, and then death. And so basically, it's almost like a silent film. But the one thing about The Color of Pomegranates that I have to say is visually, it is stunning. You haven't seen anything like this. Directed by Parashanov, um, he 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 was interested in the miniatures. You know where you have those little little dolls that that you know the smaller and smaller they get as you open them up. 
that it's yeah, that type totally of illustration. <laughs> and they're just wonderful. Wonderful. So uh, that is something that I would definitely recommend for, for those of you that want to uh, delve into something a little off the beaten track, the color of Man, pomegranates. It seems to me that I've always wondered how did the art scene, art film houses scene really start in America? Did I see how much great content for foreign films that was in these years? It was like they were forced to create it over here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And plus, remember that these films that were released were basically New York and and and, uh, and um, New York and um, L.A., maybe like Chicago. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're not going to see them any, any other place, trust me. Hardly. And who was the first one to really, who was the first guy to really make money off the foreign films, to make money off the Bergman films, to make money off the... Oh, that's, that's Corman. Corman. Yeah, Roger Corman. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And then you want to talk about one of mine, which is... Uh, a very bizarre film that I'm surprised Carl hasn't seen, and that's Funeral Parade of Roses. Nope. I've never seen it. I know of it, but I've never seen it. I've seen it when, well, this is going to come up a lot on this show, ain't it? TCM showed it. Mm-hmm. We love oh, eternal TCM classic one. movies. Don't change. Yeah. And it's about, it's based, it's, a gender-reversed version of Oedipus set in the transvestite community of Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I do have to say this. It was released in Japan in 1969, but it did not get over here until the 1970s. But yeah. we're considering it a 69 film, which it is. Yeah. It's gorgeous, insane, and just Damn. And if you love Akira Kurosawa's uh, Ron, the guy who played the poet who follows the Mad King around, Peter, is the star of Funeral Parade of Roses. Mm-hmm. Now, this, this is a film I need to see. I just have never seen it. Yeah. I mean, it's a good film. It's very honest, too, because I have to take back something I said after watching Funeral Parade of Roses. Mm -hmm. A boys in the band probably is more true than my straight ass ever did know. Mm -hmm. Because it shows them as bitter fighting sniping, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think part of that is is because you know you you can't be who you are. There's always this part of you where you have to, at that point in time, have to hide to a certain degree. Uh, and and the whole idea was to to break out of that and be who you are, and that's a very difficult thing. You no, know? even today. Yeah. 
And then 1969, when it comes to being outrageous and really telling the truth, well, comedy took the battle at 69 with the most popular mainstream one. If you ever saw the trailer for it, you wouldn't know that you've seen a trailer for it, except for a bitty writing in the bottom right corner. Am I right where it's placed? Yeah, it is the right corner. Yeah, and mm-hmm. what it is, it's a commercial about how getting white pussy will clear up your zits. <laughs> okay, directed by a prince of a man, uh, and that would be the father of Robert Downey Jr. We're talking about Robert Downey Sr., talking one of the most insane movies I've ever seen with the best trailer ever fucking made. And that would be Putney Swope. Yeah. And basically the story is very simple. There is this advertising uh, agency. Older gentlemen, all, everyone there is, is, is white except for one token black. The guy dies. They have to vote. So they figured they're going to vote. they can't vote for themselves. So they thought they were going to throw all their votes away and vote for the token black guy. Well, he gets all the votes, and they change the advertising to truth and soul advertising. And half of the half of the movie are these commercials, and it's insane, and just brilliant, brilliant film. One of the most and God angry bless films you I've for ever vinegar syndrome putting out a deluxe Blu-ray which came out about three weeks ago of this classic. Oh man. Buy it now. Seriously. Yeah. This thing is brilliant. How can and, you not and, love and, a movie with lines like, What is our purpose here? To have white men think they have big peepees by buying our product. <laughs> And, and I also the have trailer to, for it, you'll laugh for hours just from that trailer. Well, I don't know if you'll laugh or, or perhaps you'll just say, what the fuck was that? <laughs> uh, oh. well, well, Bar- you know, what, what, what's the story? Uh, um, what, was it uh, which theater ran it? And and uh, it was one of the, the oh the Alamo Draft House. They were showing okay, I forget what it was, but they were showing uh, the trailer to Putney Swope, and people come out going, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> they said they either got "What the fuck is that?" or "Oh, it's a trailer. Can we watch it again?" <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing, too, is it gives us two people, uh, introduces two people to us. One is Alan Garfield, who is is a great, wonderful uh, uh, actor, um, character actor. And in a very small role, uh, he would be featured later in a later film uh, by Downey, Alan Arbus, otherwise known as Dr. Sidney Freeman. Is in that or film God. also. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, next up, I want to talk about a film. Well, you could put this and the Wrecking Crew together. The Wrecking Crew, why are you bringing it up? Well, 
that was the movie where Bruce Lee was the kung fu trainer, was the martial arts trainer for Sharon Tate. But he was so good at being a trainer that James Coburn, his buddy, got him his first role, and he was supposed to star in Tomorrow, but he left for reasons, which means I don't know. So he played a Japanese thug in Marlowe. Mm-hmm. And, it's a and, bad Marlowe film, but a good Bruce Lee scene. Oh, absolutely. And and the other thing, too, is, is of course, he was known as Cato, too, uh, yes. in The Green Hornet in 1966. Uh, but, yes, yes, uh, and and very, very good you know, always good to see see Bruce. And him and James Garner had great repartee. When he goes in and chops the table and bus breaks in and a half, you broke yep. my damn table. What the hell did my <laughs> table ever do to you? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, I, I tell you what, we all love Bruce Lee, but it'll never be Henry Silva. Just remember that. Yeah. And here we got Eric Romer's My Nights at Night at Mods. Yeah, uh, I'm not a huge Romer fan. Uh, however, that being said, this is a, a well-made film, uh, basically about about a, a romantic uh, uh, triangle. Uh, so it's not exactly my thing, but but I you know if you're looking for a good French romantic comedy uh you can't do much better than it yeah and i would and i double checked and this one did come out in 69 and that would be more by barbe schroeder that's one of those well watch the first what well i was gonna say i was gonna say that came out in 68 in france i think I did. Uh, yeah, it might have come out in '69, but it did come out in '68. What's important is you're watching for the first 30 minutes, and you're thinking this is based on the true story of his Barbe's friend. And you're thinking for the first 30 minutes, oh, this is going to be one of those light romps. We're free. We're doing. Hey, what's in that bag? Heroin. You want some? And from that sure. point. It's a descent into drug hell. And it's not told from someone who's anti-drug, but from what Barbe Schroeder's seen, how it did his friend. Yeah. It's it's not fun. It is not fun. And what's the mm. name of that band that does songs in it? Did they ever become well, a that's the thing. That's the thing we'll talk about. Uh they they did more. They also did La Valley in 1970 with with uh, Schroeder also, uh, and did several films, uh, and that would be Pink Floyd. Now this is after Sid Barrett had left, so this is this is the mid level ones where they did Obscured with Clouds, La Valley, uh, the soundtrack to More. And we're doing a number yeah. of film film uh, scores for uh, foreign films. And uh, yeah, well, very, very see how they would uh, be attracted to do the soundtrack for more 
after they gone through what they did with Sid? Well, I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not. Um, they uh, once Sid left, they changed completely in their their. Uh, they became much more uh, psychedelic, and people at that point, as far as filmmakers, particularly uh, foreign filmmakers, were into that type of sound. So so they were very popular for a number of years, from about sixty nine, sixty eight, sixty nine to uh, about seventy one, seventy two. Yeah, and they did like and six or seven films. Out. People say, oh, Requiem with a Dream is the most depressing drug movie ever. I'm like, fuck you, see no. more. Oh, oh, there's others, too. Okay, yeah. there's others, too, that I would add to that. You know, uh, uh, Panic in Needle Park, a uh, number of them. Uh, but, yeah, more is fucking depressing. Yes. And I own it, and, and I've watched it once, and is... I will never watch it again. And next is Porkeel. Or Porkeel. Or, or, or Pigsky style. Yeah. And this is obscure even for most Pasolini fans. Yeah, let me, let me get to it. I'm, I'm working on it right here. Okay. 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 There we go. So this is a film by uh, stars Jean Pierre Liaud. Marco Ferreri, who also co-wrote. Okay, so Marco Ferreri is one of my favorite uh, 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 Italian directors. And uh, basically what you have here, it's two parallel stories. One is set in an unknown pastime and is about a young man who wanders into a volcanic landscape and turns into a cannibal. Man joins forces with a thug and ravages the countryside. The second story is about uh, Herr Klotz, a German industrialist, and his young son, Julian, who live in 1960s Germany. Julian, instead of passing time with his radically politicized fiancé, prefers to build relationship with pigs. Okay? And then the two industrialists join forces while Julian gets eaten by pigs in the sty. Okay? So, yeah, we're not talking about a realistic film here. Uh, again, it's about Pasolini and his hatred of the industrial complex and businessmen and the rich and the elites. And that's basically hey, what that. Pasolini rather, is about. I'd rather be friends with pigs than these fucking guys that are in charge of this country. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course... Who's better, the pigs running the country or the pigs in the sty? Which is the normal people, right? So, yeah. The normal people scare me even more. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. And yep. this year, we're not going to really talk about these, but these are two bigger. Well, one, this one's a big first film, which, even though he's hated nowadays, Fuck you, I love Take the Bunny and Run. Oh. Fun film. Fun movie. Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, Woody Allen, is, I love his early stuff. Up until Love and Death. Yeah. You were the guy sitting at the bottom of the theater in Stardust Memories, weren't you? Yeah. 
basically. <laughs> I miss the days when he makes funny films. Why can't he be <laughs> funny again? <laughs> yep. <laughs> and moving on, uh, here's one that I liked. That I don't know how Car feels, but I think it's one of the more interesting failures to come out of '69, and that is uh, Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man. I like it. Um... I don't think it's perfect by any means. Oh, God, uh, yeah. I, Stories I, are weird, as in there's no through line through them. What I mean by that is usually you go to an anthology and you expect story A, B, C, a.k.a. just three stories in the same theme, like the Martian Chronicles. And this right. one, you go from horror to drama to straight hardcore sci-fi. Right. True, uh, but the 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 one the belt, the first story is really good. They got yeah. that one right. And Steiger's and really plus good. Steiger and Claire Bloom are great in it. Yeah, agreed. And next agreed. is one of Carl's films, which I like too, but not as much as he did. And that's Luciano Visconti's The Damned. It's Visconti. Okay, whether or not you like it or not, uh, you need to watch it. Okay, and and again, I do a lot of I, I'm doing a lot of the porn films in this this one, um, and basically, uh, it's it's part of the German trilogy. Which is followed by Death and Venice and Ludwig, okay, uh, and it centers on the Essenbecks, uh, industrial family who become business with the Nazi Party, and on the night of the Reichstag fire, the conservative patriarch represents the old aristocratic uh, Germany and uh, detests Hitler, and he's murdered, and, and it's all about uh, the empire passes to the control of this. Boorish officer Constantine, and it's all about the destruction of this family, and it is not pleasant. Um, but one thing that I do have to say about it is that any movie with Dirk Bogard, you need to watch. I don't care. This is this is your <laughs> oh, it's a good this, film. This is but your homework. Like you see Dirk too. Bogard, you must watch the movie. Okay, yeah. there you go. What I'm saying is. There was starting to be so much great quality out there with the foreign films that it basically forced the U.S. or someone like Roger Corman, who just seen money, mm-hmm. to start oh, well, the market for it. Oh, and by the way, I have to say something before we go. This marks the debut of one of my favorite actresses. Who? Charlotte Rampling. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, if you don't know Charlotte Rampling, you know, find her out. Watch Stardoz. Trust me. 
And plus, one of the major events of the starting of the black film movement of the 70s really happened this year when Warner Brothers took a risk on an autobiographical script mm. by an untested director but a Pulitzer Prize winner for his Photography for Life magazine. And that would be Gordon Parks' The, the Learning Tree. I don't know why people expound on Sounder so much. It's a good movie, but they always forget, and you never see The Learning Tree mentioned. No, and The Learning Tree is three years earlier. Yeah. Than Sounder. Sounder's 1972. Yeah. I I think one of the things about that is that you're right. This is the first real black themed family movie that was made. Uh, in, in, in that particular era, it was marketed not to black audiences. It was marketed all across the board. Uh, and I think a lot of people just wasn't used to that. And and, well, and it seems to have gotten, if not in the dustbin, it seems to be put in a corner that people have forgotten which corner it's in. But it's a damn good movie. Yeah, well, be honest, it played good in the South because even if we weren't black, we all went through experiences like that growing up. Oh, absolutely. And what it's about is about one summer where Gordon basically learns that sometimes being an honest, upright person is the worst thing you can do. Mm -hmm. He learns moral ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And it was on uh, uh, da, 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 TCM two weeks ago. Yep. Again. And here's one that's his first big film, but it's his first film to work with two of the major stars of his biggest film of the 70s. And that would be The Rain People by Francis Ford Coppola with James Caan and Robert Duvall in it. And don't forget Shirley Knight. Shirley Knight in this film, she was also up for an Academy Award. Uh, yeah. She didn't win, but she's absolutely magnificent. And she's forgotten these days. She's yeah. really good in this. The film itself is problematic to me. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I actually think Con is in cast. But, but Shirley Knight's fantastic. You can see how, in a way, it was a dry run for Duval and Khan to really show that they could work with uh, Coppola. When The Godfather came around, he was one of the first two people they ca- he cast for it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. And here is the first. Jewish film, which was a big thing in the 70s. And that would be Goodbye Columbus. Uh, I don't like this film. Uh, I'm not like saying it. you like it, but you got to agree it was the first of the Jewish films that came out in the 70s. Well, again, in 69. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely Jewish themed. I don't like it. So that's all I'm going to say about it. (laughs) 
Just because something deserves a book in history doesn't mean it's a good film to watch. No, no, no. Though, though, I will say this: the only good thing about it is Jack Lookman. Yeah. Ally McGraw as a Jewish princess. No. No. <laughs> Can I say this again? No. Okay. Never mind. And here is the movie I'm just bringing up because Elvis had two movies come out in 69. One, which is a pretty damn decent spaghetti western called Charo. Mm -hmm. And the film that drove his stake into his cart's career deeper and more angrier than Carl going after someone who don't like pretentious films, and that would be Change of Habit. Oh, good God. Why are you even fucking mentioning this piece of shit? Because that movie and that is really was the death of the old rock, 50s and 60s doo-wop. That was really the death, the final death of 50s rock. Well, it was the death of fucking Elvis, too. Yeah, Elvis was 50s rock, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, but I, but you know the '60s Elvis movies aren't that good, with the exception of like Flaming Star and 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 a couple others. Uh, but most of them are just pop pastiches that just don't work. Sorry, and 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 I don't blame Elvis. I blame Parker. I uh, never mind. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started. Let's move on. And we got to remember this because this is one of the sexiest films that Truffaut ever put out and uh, that would be Mississippi Mermaid even the remake with Angelina Jolie and Antonio Banderas couldn't even raise a shit spot on this movie well I wonder why let me give you two fucking words Catherine Deneuve oh yeah whenever Truffaut Whenever Truffaut did a noir film, he did a couple of true blue noirs. Whenever he did one of those, those are immediately worth watching. Don't stop. Don't pass go. Just watch it. Yeah. Uh, don't shoot the piano player, for one. Yeah. The Bride wore black. Yep. That's another one. And, of course, Mississippi Mermaid. Damn. Yep. Agreed. Okay, where else? Where are we going? And we're going to talk about this one, which was his first real film, which you thought was me about. And I say this was his first real film because he didn't have to deal with that fucking asshole T.C. Frank. That's all I'm calling him. He ain't even getting his real name set on the show anymore. <laughs> Fuck you, T.C. Frank. And that would be that cold day in the park. Uh, this is a wonderful film. Uh, it is problematic. Uh, Altman was finding his way. But Sandy Dennis is just fantastic in this. I watched this about a year or so ago. I got it from the library. Um, and it's it 
it's a little too long. It's a little too protracted. But still, Altman, basically it's about this lonely woman who uh, uh, sees this boy in the park and brings him into her house. And basically, it's sort of like the reverse of the collector, where where she's the one that holds him captive. And uh, she's wonderful. She's just fantastic. And needless to say, to shorten it up, Altman took the ball which was given to him on this, and motherfucker did he run. Oh, yeah. You know, let's not forget, you know, I mean, we talked a little bit about Countdown, which is 68, but Countdown was the movie that was given to him as a uh, a hire uh, for hire film. He did well enough for that, even though he pissed people off because he loved the, the, the dialogue that he was able to get funding for this, and this was able to get funding and be hired for MASH, and then MASH just took him over the top. I forget who said it, but the thing is, it doesn't matter how big of an asshole, scumbag motherfucker you are, as long as you can make them money. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and 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 Alban had a run. I mean, if you want to see someone and all different types of things that he does, TV and that, you know, there are definite films that are definite clinkers. But God damn, he had a run. Yeah, just great films, or even if they're not great, they're really freaking interesting. Yeah, and here we're going to go into my one of my all-time favorite directors. Who only had two movies, and goddamn, they were both amazing. And the first one is not this year. It's Narcisco Ibanez Serrador with the house that screamed. That okay. film is freaking amazing. Have you got to see that one? No, I have not. Oh, it's good. At least I, I, it's not jumping out at me. I may have seen it, but I don't remember. Well, you might have seen it under uh, the residence, the house that screamed. But you have seen his other film. Okay. Gay Padar es un niño. Oh, 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 who can kill a child? Yeah. He only did two yep. films, but when you make two films like The Residents and Who Can Kill a Child, hey. Hey, I'm okay with that. Yeah, both be, of those are great, and they're out on Blu-ray. You need to get them or see them. Okay. Cool. And here's one of, uh, no, this is, the Lost Classic of this year for Carl, and that is Abraham Polanski's Tell Em Willie Boy is here. Okay. Polanski was blacklisted. Did a number of films in the 40s and 50s, and he was blacklisted. 
he he was able to direct some theater, but this was his comeback film. It was the only film uh, after this he passed away. And basically what it is, it's a very simple story that you have a half-breed, uh, Willie Boy, played by Robert Redford, which I think is a little bit of miscasting, but never mind. And uh, Robert Blake as... Uh, uh, as a uh, uh, sheriff, and, and basically he is set up for a murder and uh, uh, chased and comes back and wreaks vengeance. And basically, of course, instead of an action film, which it sounds like, it's more like this character study between Blake and Nat, and it's, and it's basically, you know, going back to UAC and like, you know, you set me up you know, now it's your your turn. You know, people are going to know that you did this and that you were wrong. And and it's yeah. really interesting. And I love the film. I love the film. Uh, what's your thoughts on it, Stephen? Oh, it's a very good little movie. But you're right. Robert Redford was cast, but there's no way you could have gotten a movie cast like that without a white mainstream star. Right. Which... Which I just, eh, I think it's miscast. But other than that, it's really good. And and Redford does fine with the role. He yeah. does fine. I just don't think. And he with uh, thirty minutes left, I'm going. We're going to talk about the biggest ones from '69. I'm going to leave Carl's biggest one for last because I know he's going to go off on it. Number okay. five. Well. Before that, yeah, we got Bonnie and Clyde. Pow, pow, pow. Holy shit, 20 rounds, like we said. But never in the history of film had any of us seen a movie as violent as The Wild Bunch. That one changed almost all the rules when it comes to... Well, the spaghetti westerns were violent, but a lot of the more violent ones weren't trans weren't put over here. No. But the Wild Bunch, good God, I would have liked to have been a, there to see a 1969 audience's reaction to the first massacre where the temperance movement people got shot. Oh man, you know. Uh... How you did know, your dad react the first time he seen the violence? Of well, the well, he didn't like the movie. He never liked liked the Wild Bunch. It, uh, see, the thing is, at, at this point in time, with with the Wild Bunch and, and 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 some some movies previous to that, the Hellman films, uh, uh, they were morally questionable people. And my father liked white and black. So no, my father did not like this movie at all. I, and, and in fact, until I saw it on TV, I didn't see the uncut until a long time later. It wasn't until uh, sometime in the seventies on HBO. So no, seriously, the full full uncut version, which they cut twenty minutes to get in more showings per day. 
was only showed for like the first three weeks, and then I decided let's cut out some random shit so we can get more show times in. And that version wasn't restored until 1989. Right. They didn't cut any more the out of it. Yeah. They cut bot. Oh, they well, they cut a lot. I don't know exactly what though. Uh, they cut out the scene where uh, William Holden's character, le- who is William Holden? No, he's the leader. The guy who's chasing William Holden, where he gets arrested in the whorehouse because Pike fucks up. Right. And the whole scene where it shows he was beaten in pr- Basically, anything that made that guy sort of sympathetic was cut out. Oh, you mean Ryan. Robert Ryan is who you're yeah, talking Yeah, Robert about. Ryan's character. All, a lot, right. Most of his uh, character beats were cut out because they wanted to take out 20 minutes. Right. And they wanted you know, to the funny, take... The funny thing is, I remember, I want to say this. My dad watched this, or at least watched a good 40 minutes on say, TV, and he loved Holden. He loved Ryan. He loved Ernest Borgnine uh, and Ben Johnson. And I remember him saying, why are they in this piece of crap? Seriously. My dad did not like this movie. And I'm sorry, the Wild Budge has the best credit Director's credit stinger ever. Mm-hmm. What it does is like you're in the middle of the scene. If they move, kill them. Boom. Directed by Sam Peckinpah. <laughs> yeah. You knew what the film standards were. But what's funny is Sam Peckinpah got this reputation for gore from the Wild Bunch. And he really didn't go that excessive ever again. No, well, well, there is Garcia. Yeah. There's Garcia. Uh, but one other thing about the Wild Bunch I need to mention is I'm not sure if it was his debut, but it was the first time I ever met, ever saw this actor, and I was so taken by him, and I think he's never gotten his his due, and that's Bo Hawk. Yeah, it Bo was Hawkins. Bo Hawkins' first film. I love him in this movie. Fucking love him in it. And he's only in the first ten minutes. Yeah. But he makes an impression. And you have to like him or else you wouldn't understand that Pike's a son of a bitch when he just fucking leaves him with his ass to the wind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's beautifully cast, beautifully acted. There's so many films that could be called perfect films that came out in 1969. These five that were going into in-depth on are definitely perfect films. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where to next, sir? Uh... The first gay film to win an Oscar. The first film to be rated X. No, it wasn't. It was R. I'm sorry it was rated X. No, look up your official Academy history, Steve. It's R. 
I don't care. The movie no, it was at that ass. time. Fuck you. Yeah. And that would be Dustin Hoffman and John Voight. John Schlesinger did a couple of gay theme films in that time, or was it just Midnight Cowboy? Oh and no, Sunday, no, Bloody he did. Sunday. He did. Yeah, Schlesinger was gay. Schlesinger oh, hit oh, on okay. me. That's an old story. Okay, that's a story for another time. Well, I actually got hit oh, on no. by him once. I was bringing it up because. We've already talked about Midnight Cowboy before, but, I mean, you would think something's going on after watching Midnight Cowboy and Bloody Sunday, Bloody... Sunday, Bloody Sunday. I can't say it right now. Yeah. Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. But, yeah, wouldn't you say this was the first the film that showed the new Hollywood taking over the Oscars? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and John Boyd and Dustin Hoffman. I'm walking here. I'm walking here. My name is Christopher. Never mind. Um, <laughs> bad joke. I'm sorry, but um, that has to be one of the best improvisations ever. Are you kidding? That's now, I wouldn't know what great. to do if some jackass just drove into a scene and I was playing. Yeah. Would you? No. And him. Boom. I'm walking here. I'm fucking walking here. And that scene is really why the movie got an X rating. Yeah. Well, no, there's a blowjob in the in the theater. Come on. No, I've actually looked up the records. Excessive use of the word fuck. Well, <laughs> Well, that's one reason, okay? Trust me, there's a blowjob in the theater. There's gay sex. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. trust me, it's rated X for a reason. Many reasons. Well, yeah, it won Best Academy Award, and that really was when New Hollywood took over. Well, in the other two films, too. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll we've got a lot to go over yet. But uh, another okay, thing that we go, have to say is the soundtrack to this. By Jack uh-huh. Berry, the, the score, and then the song by Nilsson. Uh, uh, everybody's talking. Uh, uh, Brenda Vaccaro, who's just fantastic. Uh, the acting, you know, just just a great film. If you have Are not you seen down? this, you must see this. Are you sitting down, Carl? Yes. Nilsson deserved his Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, of course, he didn't like the song, but, you know, Fred Neal got the Oscar. But but Nilsson, of course, sang it and was just fantastic. Well, they retroactively put it where the writer and the singer mm-hmm. is crazy. Yeah, after, after Harry is dead, but that's okay. Well, he that's got okay. his Oscar. They gave it to his family. Okay, cool. But, yeah, I couldn't imagine that movie without it because it's so happy at the first of the movie. You know, everybody's talking at me. And you're like, yeah, da, da. And then at the end scene, and I can't oh, hear man. a word to say, what? And then you feel depressed. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a depressing fucking film. Yeah. 
Okay. Where are we had one of yours that you consider the most important that we haven't really touched yet, besides your number one. Okay, ones that I think that are important that we haven't. Okay, so let me just go through here. Um, give me a moment. Uh, one I think we definitely have to talk about. We mentioned him briefly uh, as an uh, actor, but uh, Marco Ferrari uh, came out with a film called Dillinger is Dead, which is a Criterion release, which you definitely need to see. I love that film. Uh, that's one film I would recommend very, very highly. Um, and for me, with Ferrari, I would recommend also uh, Tales of Ordinary Madness and Bye Bye Monkey, but definitely Tales of Ordinary Madness. Okay, and there's one other I would say for Ferrari, too, and that is Le Grand Buffet. Only Ferrari could take eating an exquisite, beautiful meal, fucking beautiful, exquisite horse, and make it into the most disgusting and vile sight you've ever fucking seen. <laughs> well, that's the whole thing about Ferrari. Ferrari was very much a... a uh, uh, um, a um, person who was influenced by Pasolini, and we were talking about Porcel, uh, and he was in Porcel. Uh, but but Ferrari, unlike uh, Pasolini, was more uh, went even more weird, just strange, uh, and 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 I would definitely mention that. Now, of course. There's a there's one film that I'm going to mention. There's another film I do want to mention, which is not uh, uh, a great film, but it's really interesting. interesting and that is film. The Monitors. The Monitors is a science fiction film where where it's a society where aliens have come down and uh, have basically put in laws and, and we don't have uh, uh, um, uh, free will anymore, but you know, like, like it's like really odd laws. This is, this is uh, done by second city, uh, uh, the comedy group. And it's an odd film. It stars Guy Stockwell and Susan Oliver, but I can guarantee you've never seen anything like it. So I, I, I would recommend that. And there's one other that we've got to talk about too um, that that we have not mentioned. Um, uh, what's the one? I'm, I'm trying to look for it now. Uh, the one uh, where where uh, Ralph Richardson is turning into uh, oh the bed sitting room. Room, yeah. He just described the plot in there. That one may be the most surreal British comedy. Of the 60s. Okay, and, and, and there is a reason for that. Okay, so so this movie, i got to talk about this. So there was a comedy group called The Goon Show. Okay, and it was Harry Seacombe, Peter Sellers, I can't think of the fourth person, but it was also the great and wonderful, um, oh, come on, uh, um, Spike Milligan. 
And Spike is just out there. Spike is also in, in The Magic Christian. Uh, but this is based on a play that he did. And basically, it is Britain after the atomic uh, bomb has hit. And it's just this really weird satire on how no matter what happens, there are certain things that will always last. Like the BBC, which is a guy with half a tuxedo and a broken TV uh, that, that he goes by and, and and that the postal service is this balloon with Peter Cook dropping dropping anvils and stuff like that. The subway system uh, works, but only between two stops, and, and this type of thing. And it's and it's wonderful, and it's weird, and it's uh, and of course it's it's what's his name, uh, Sir Ralph Richardson, who is yeah. one of my favorite British actors. He played God. And Terry Gillum's uh, 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 Time Bandits. Time Bandits. Just wonderful actor. And he basically is turning into a bed sitting room. Okay? And just leave yeah, it at that. That one uh, you got to watch. After the war, if you don't keep moving and you stand still for too long, you turn into a bed sitting room. So all through well, the film, you have Dudley Moore, who only has one line room, in the movie. Another one turns into a cabinet. Yeah. You know. Do you remember what Dudley, yeah. li- Dudley Moore's one line in the movie is, which he keeps saying? I, I can't remember it offhand, no. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this one but crosses the border into weird. This is more uh, Lynchian type. That's across the border. It makes a whole new country of weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and don't expect logic and an ending. No. There's no... There's an inter- there really is an internal logic to it, but don't even try to figure it out the first two times you've seen it. Just watch it and go, what the fuck was that? Yeah. Any other ones real quick? Well, you know, nah, I'm not going to mention that one. No, never Fine. mind. No, no, no. Go no, ahead. no, 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 no. You, you can Erotimus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that one is I, more I, fun I, to read as a title than watch as a movie. <laughs> That's another, you know, that borders the bed sitting room, but that's the bad part of town. <laughs> Trust me. It, no, I think we're, I think we're, oh, the Milky Way, too. Luis Buñuel yeah. uh, just mentioned anything by Buñuel. Which is the worst vanity piece? Uh, can Harmonious Malcolm or The Savage is Loose? Oh, Ken Aronimus Merkin. Easy. Oh, did we mention Brighter in the Rain? What? Did we mention Brighter in the Rain? Oh, God, no, we forgot that. that okay, that you got to go with Brighter in the Rain. Come on. Yeah, that one just came out on DVD, on Blu-ray in America. First time it's ever had a disc release over here. 
period. And it's a beautiful little giallo with Charles Bronson in a role that you would never expect him in. As a mm-hmm. cop looking for this uh, escaped G.I. who broke into this woman's house and raped her. So she kills him and dumps the body. And he and the rest of the movie is them flirting with each other and trying to find out who knows what. Yep. It's uh, There were a number of... of, of French directors who did uh, um, mysteries and and and, and that uh, Claude Chabrol was one, but this is Rene Clément, and it's a great film. It's a wonderful film, and it shows a different side of Bronson. So yes, I yeah. would I would mention that. Definitely. That's the problem. He, you get the poster of it, and it has Bronson shirtless with a gun to the girl. That's not a way to. Advertise a movie that once you watch it is a delicate little flick thriller. Yeah. And talking no about big. Chabrol, he did uh, uh, that yeah. same year, Chabrol put out This Man Must Die, which is one of his lesser films, but still a good film. Uh, uh, anything else that that's coming up? Uh, well, now, onto the yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're ready for our last ones. Yeah, the big three. Uh, well, well, the big two. Okay. This movie. When well, it I think I should out, probably go out. first. No, you're going last. Because so mine gonna is going to be considered number film? two by most people. Well, no, I'm sorry. I, it. It's. This is basically it. Our number ones are tied because we can't say this one is better, this one is worse. We can't. Well, we can, and, but we're not going to because we both acknowledge that these are great films. Yeah, number Period. two was considered the biggest AIP movie ever made, and for some reason, AIP was looking for another biker movie. So they had just made one, I think Hell's Angel 69, with uh, Peter Fonda. They're like, we need to have another biker movie quick. And Peter's like, I got this script this guy, friend of mine, Dennis Hopper wrote. He's like, okay, here's some money, go make it. Wait, don't you want to read it? No, we ain't got time to read it. Just have it done within nine months. And that's how Easy Rider came into Genesis. And also it had one of the most weirdest moments which led to the best recasting of all time, which was Rest in Peace to a Rip Torn. Him pulling a butter knife out on Dennis Hopper, leading to him getting fired, and... Peter Fonda hiring another one of his co-stars from Hell's Angel 69 to take the guy's place. Whatever happened to that guy, Carl? Well, you know, I think he met, uh, he did pretty well for himself. Of course, we're talking about Jack Nicholson. Nicholson. 
yeah, this movie is another one of those like Saturday Night Fever where people watched it and got the wrong message. Because they were like, born to be wild, thinking, yeah, freedom. And they missed. And they missed the crucial line, which is maybe buried in the fireplace scene about 20 minutes before the ending. Right. It's just a quiet scene, and then Peter Fonda goes, we blew it. And this, the soundtrack, we got to talk about the soundtrack to this. This was the first ever multi-company rock soundtrack to be put on vinyl. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us, Carl, why it was so hard to get what's so amazing about that? Well, you know, it's all about copyright, okay? So all of these artists are on different companies and owned by different companies, their music. So there had to be this, you know, agreement worked out between all these different publishing companies and and they were able to do it and then what that did is that the rock soundtrack which it started and you did have a couple beforehand uh like walk on the wild side and uh things like that was 68 i think um but but it really really went through the roof with this this film and and you know I uh, I think this is a great film. It's an iconic film. It's a film that really captured the zeitgeist of the era. And we're talking about 1969. This is the death of 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 of, yeah. of, of, of innocence. And so that's what this movie was about. And and the other movie we'll be talking about, which I'll I'll, I'll introduce here in a moment, is also about that. Uh, but uh, has a much different feel to it. Uh, yeah. But everybody in this film is great. There isn't anyone that isn't good. And another one we forgot, i got to mention real quick, is would you think that putting together five directors, four editors, having them work around the clock, would get you a movie as good as the final product of Woodstock was. Are you fucking kidding me? Unbelievable. What they did with that, let's put it this way, okay? Woodstock happened in the summer. Three months later, they had a fucking film. How they did that, I'll never know. I'll well, never know. They had- they had two or three editing crews. Uh, let's see, Martin Scorsese worked on it. Francis Ford Coppola. Of course, the person who was credited, Michael Wadley. Yeah, do you know why he got the credit, don't you? Yeah, because they picked it out of a hat. I'm well aware of that. Yeah. So there wasn't no ego there. Imagine no. trying to work with him and their egos nowadays. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But yeah, and it turned out a great concert movie. That's well, a fantastic concert movie. And it's plus, that amazing. really kills the myth 
oh, Woodstock was all about love, man. No, it wasn't. It was all about product, man, because within six months of the movie coming out, they uh, the concert happening, they had the albums out. They had the T-shirts. They had the movie. Oh, yeah. And to try trust to say me, they that knew what they were doing. Woodstock was a peaceful, was the culmination of love. No, it's really when the hippies start to say, you mean we can make money off this bullshit? Yep. Yep. Let me just see what else. Oh, we're up to yours now. We got go- and people sat down because this is a film that he truly loves, and it yeah. fits in my category of when reality goes wrong. And Carl will get into that why. Here he is with Carl in his number one film of 69. And that would be Medium Cool. Medium Cool is a film uh, that was written and directed by Haskell Wexler. Haskell was a cinematographer. He had worked on documentaries. And the whole thing is set up like a documentary. So you have this this character who's played by Robert Forster. who's absolutely fantastic in this film. Uh, and his name is John Katselis. Uh And he's a television news cameraman. In his sound recorded, you know, films, images of accidents rather than helping the victims. And he's very hardened to ethical and social issues. He just does his job. It's my job. It's my job. I, I, I capture what's out there. And so in the course of his job, he, he meets Eileen, who's a single mother and her son moved from their West Virginia to Chicago. And and then when, you know, Harold tells Gatzelis that his father is in Vietnam, but Eileen says that she believes he's dead, and, and he grows fond of them. And then Harold goes missing. Uh, Eileen goes to the side of the convention to ask Gatzelis for help. He is filming the actual Democratic 1968 convention, and she finds herself in the midst of, of, of riots, and this was actually filmed during the riots, the Democratic uh, Convention riots in Chicago in 1968. Uh, Salas also finds out that the FBI is taking his footage and using it to uh, uh, profile and, uh, uh, all the anti-war uh, uh, activists that are uh, rallying against uh, and, and uh, rioting against the convention. And it is a frightening film. And it is okay, so frightening. Stephen, Stephen, hold on. Stephen, hold on. Hold on. Hold on, because I'm going to give it to you here in a second. Okay, Ooh. so you have a story, Stephen, about Haskell Wexler and what happened during the filming. Go ahead and say it. Yeah, what happened is he was filming it, and what he didn't realize is that his film was more on the nose than he thought, and that the hippie movement seen the cameramen and journalists as their enemy. So he went there just to film, and then all of a sudden, he's filming us. He's the enemy. Get him! <laughs> and they turn and flood and attack him and his crew. 
Well, it's not funny because because uh, Robert Forster, I had a, a chance with Vicky uh, years ago to have a conversation with him, and he tells stories of this film where they're actually frightened for their lives during this film. Yeah, you can if hear you on the soundtrack. It. Well, I, I'm not even there yet, Stephen. I got more to go. Oh. Okay. So, so you take a look at this film, and you can see the fear, and 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 it's just an amazing. Uh, uh, so what happens with Forster is he he he's this very cynical person, and he sees everything even getting worse, and he changes, and and. Uh, uh, just, it's an amazing, amazing uh, film. And Bernard Bloom, who who plays his love interest, is so good. Um, Peter Bonertz, who was a comedian and director, uh, plays the sound person that goes with him. But again, Haskell uses his documentary uh, uh, background to give us a film that's right in your face. You'll never ever be the same after this. Now, talking about the soundtrack, the soundtrack uh, is amazing in a way that, you know, we know the easy writer soundtrack, Born to be Wild, so on and so forth. But Haskell Wexler uh, approached Frank Zappa and told him what he was doing, and he had certain ideas for the music that he thought Zappa would be good. So Zappa basically gave him his music for free because he really liked what, what was happening with the film. Uh, and so you have lots of Zappa on the, on, on the soundtrack. You've got uh, the Fugs on the soundtrack. This is a completely different feel of, 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 of soundtrack uh, where it's very underground. Um, and it's a great soundtrack. Uh, and the other thing, too, is it's all about social and political upheaval. And, and you know, these are touched in films like Strawberry Straightman and Get, Getting Straight and Drivey Said. But this film puts you in the middle of it because it's real. And that is scary. And this was a, given an X rating. And, yes. You could see Robert Forster in all his naked glory if you want. Okay? So there you go. And that's one thing that, that uh, uh, Quentin Tarantino said when he was uh, uh, doing uh, Jackie Brown. He, he screened this and says, anyone want to see Robert Forster naked? Come, come watch this. So there you go. Perfect film. Greatest film of 1969 in my estimation. And that would be medium cool. Have you noticed that what, there's one thing that we really said the same about all three of the bit what we considered the top films of the year? Okay. The soundtracks. They've all had oh. great rock soundtracks that really changed how music and movies were perceived. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, and, and, and one other thing is that, that the critical okay. response to this was absolutely fantastic. But the box office was deader than doornails. Did not do well at the box office. That's because 
the generation right above yours knew their hearts were breaking, and they didn't want to watch it on screen. Yeah. They were still into buying the Woodstock, what Woodstock was selling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yeah, if you really look at 1969, you can see the hippies movement heart slowly breaking on film. Absolutely. And how America was destroying itself into the confusing chaos that was the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why Tarantino is doing his film as a love note to 1969. Because that's the year that everything changed. Yeah. It was. And thank you for being on. And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Tomorrow night we're going to be doing a small tribute to a 50-year-old. Yes, this franchise is 50 years old this year, Carl. Oh, my God. It started with a, a poster for me of Jawas and a silver ball and a little boy. And that would be Phantasm. From the good to the bad to why you shouldn't destroy Himikudas. We and my guest will be talking about it tomorrow night. And nice. Go, next week, go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's going to be great. Hey, and Carl. Yes? We made it through two hours and ten minutes without using the forbidden word that we decided on this show. What's the forbidden word? It's certainly not fuck. The M word. Oh. And what would the M word be? That would be CM, as in Charles Miles. Ah, okay, gotcha. Because people don't realize as much impact as that guy did. It didn't come out into the public until 1970. That's true. I'm with that. That's true. Thank you for putting up with me twice this week, Carl. My pleasure, Stephen. My pleasure. Not a problem at all. All right. Good night, everyone. Good show. Thanks, Stephen. Another year with nothing to do